Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. Hey, welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy there. Pull up a chair. And hear a tale. And hear a tale. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. Oh. Anyway. Oh, it's episode 15, Tim. Yes, that's right. Welcome back, everyone, for another edition of New World Trains of Thought, episode 15. I am Timothy Deal, also known as Jonathan Goodfellow. And I am Nick Hayden, also known as Lance Valentina. Both uh, story project names there. You know? Yeah, poor, I'm running out of nicknames. I never acquired quite as many as uh, Tim had, I don't think. Well, half of mine I, are nicknames I gave myself, well. so I'm not sure that's <laughs> accurate. But uh, welcome back, and hope everyone has had a good week out, or since whenever it's been the last time since you listened to us, for those of you who are still getting caught up. I hope you enjoyed your uh, fan fictions that you have read since. Okay, never mind. <laughs> trying to be clever alright well I think we better stop ad-libbing and just get on with our first segment for today listener feedback first off uh, we have sort of a sort of a listener feedback it's also kind of a correction from our last episode Laura Fisher left us a comment and let us know that Mercedes Lackey. Thank you, I had almost forgotten the author's name. Has apparently shifted her opinion on fanfiction. Laura last time said that Mercedes Lackey forbid it, um, forbade it, something like that. Smote it. She didn't like it. <laughs> she outlawed it for a time, but she's since changed her position on that, and Laura had some interesting information about that from Wikipedia that you should go check out in the comments. Yeah. Laura was also inspired to catch up on some of our old podcasts, and she left an interesting comment regarding Princess Mononoke from the How to Read a Story episode. And commenting on how well um, Miyazaki balances humans' need for nature and then protecting nature, that Princess Mononoke doesn't just say, get rid of all technology and be natives, and it doesn't say, burn down all the forests. And I think it's the confusing thing about that movie the first time you see it, because you expect it to be one way or the other. It's very complex, mm -hmm. and Miyazaki likes doing that. Most of their, most of his bad guys are kind of multi-layered. It'd be nice if more movies were a little more—not all movies, but some movies are a little more nuanced, I guess, in their how they come down on important subject matter. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, I recently saw another Studio Ghibli film, one that was done by Hayao Miyazaki's son, Goro Miyazaki. Oh, an adaptation of Tales from Earthsea. It was odd. Oh, by uh, Ursula Le Guin? Yeah, adaptation of oh, that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Which, from what the author has said, it was kind of a very loose adaptation, which Studio Ghibli is liable to do. Yeah, I mean, Howl's Moving Castle is pretty loose according to the book. But probably the scariest villain, or creepiest villain, at least I've ever seen in a Ghibli film. <laughs> but odd. I don't, Goro has, has a bit to learn from his father yet, I think. <laughs> And one other quick thing we'll mention real quick. We had an anonymous person leave a comment about fandoms, about some fandoms that they had been a part in. Thank you for commenting and listing that. Yeah, it was quite entertaining to read all the different things you're interested in. Yeah, I mean, we're always trying to foster more discussion on it. And so that's always cool to see uh, someone kind of... Join in. Yeah, sharing a little bit about yourself. So that's always cool. And a quick note, I hope you enjoy the updates on the website. We try to make it a little less uh, load time on some of the pages. Yeah, I think it's it's really cool. I really like that we can see all the episodes are right there on the main page, but it doesn't hopefully the page is much easier to load now. Yeah. That's cool. All right, with that said, I think we're ready to dive into Story School. Oh. Story School today is on originality. Again, we're, we've really liked this year kind of bouncing back and forth or bouncing one story school uh, topic off of each other. So last time we did fan fiction, so Nick thought it might be interesting to talk about originality in a story. How important is it? 
I'm not sure exactly where this idea came from, but one of the first things I think of when I think originality is some conversations I had in college with, I don't know if they were writing majors, but they were writers, talking about how there's nothing new under the sun and everything's just plagiarized from someone else and very basically saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you write, everything's been done before, blah, 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 blah. Which technically is correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just read Ecclesiastes, oddly enough. Um, last week. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. You know. Meaningless, meaningless. (laughs) But I think, I have have two sides. I'll start with the one. Originality in the sense of trying not to just copy, but to put your own spin on something is certainly worth doing. That just because people have said, told a story about princesses and princes doesn't mean that another person can't tell the same story and make it worth reading. Yeah, I mean, there are myths and legends that people never get tired of hearing because in a sense it's kind of bred into us. The knight goes off to save a damsel in distress, even though I don't really don't know very many stories that go like that. That's kind of the, you know, those are the archetypes, the the broad strokes. Well, oh, I know I meant to go look at uh, TV Tropes. Have you been to that website before? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've wasted some time there. <laughs> Which, you know, some people say, look, all this stuff, this is the trope for this film and this is a trope for this sort of thing and say... Stay away from stereotypes. Well, personally, I like stereotypes. I think stereotypes are a great place to start making a story. Now, you don't necessarily want to... You want to be free with it. You want to you know, move it in, in the direction you want to go with it. But I think the need to be different or to be original can sometimes be a bad thing. No, I think that's very true. And I think TV tropes is kind of a, a good and a bad thing. It's, it's interesting to catalog all these things, but I think... Even some people who've been involved in the community there have said, look, don't take this too seriously. Remember the MST3K mantra, it's just a show, you should really just relax. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Yeah, sometimes you really can get too caught up on something. And I'm reminded of when we started talking about doing this topic, I instantly remembered a C.S. Lewis quote. I wish I knew what book it was from. But something he once said that someone who who is too caught up on trying to be original will never succeed. Whereas a person who's just trying to write a good story, a very interesting thing, and not care about originality at all, will wind up producing some of the most creative, imaginative works out there. And I think I think that's where, where I come down. I think the best way to be original is to just tell the story as you can tell the story. Mm-hmm. Just step into very philosophical terms. Okay, so there's nothing new in their son, and from a, or a Christian point of view, that means everything is rooted in God. And so you're just telling the same source, type of stories over and over again, but you have your own view of that same story, juxtaposing it with things you like. I mean, apparently George Lucas likes... I got to throw Star Wars in here. <laughs> um, no, but he took the whole knight and princess thing and threw it into Western and threw it into space. Mm-hmm. It's the same old story, but you just put your own personal twist on it. And I think you're right. If you were purposely trying to do something unique... It would have been lame. Yeah. But if you just, you, this is how you feel it's interesting. Well, as, and as far as like the philosophical nature, you know, like where it's coming truth, it reminds me of that passage you often quoted from G.K. Chesterton from or- Orthodoxy. The kind of idea that God doesn't get tired of, of good stuff just because good stuff happens regularly. It doesn't me- make it any less good. So he, he's like the, the child who makes the sun go up, and he's like, that was great. Do it again. Exactly. You're my son. You know, if you do something once, he wants to do it ten times. And I think good things you want to see over and over again. There's a reason we do the same movies, or types of movies, types of stories over and over again. And I, I feel like sometimes the cutting edge of art is too interested in trying to do something brand new. You know, maybe they'll put some something on TV, film something that's over the top just because it hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. Or I wish I had, an, I, I could remember it, but I was at my sister's bookstore reading some of her, she gets advanced reader copies. And it was like this guy who worked in an office and he was divorced and he wanted to move to Australia and there was something about, I'm just going to make it up, you know, a midget. I mean, <laughs> I mean, they, they try so hard to make it into something completely not seen before. You know, it's the story of a one-armed bowling man who is addicted to cheese and <laughs> to, to uh, quote okay. Weird Al. Okay. I actually <laughs> want to see that book. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it, it could be a good book, but if your selling point is simply the being different, mm-hmm. I have a feeling some of the most original things 
you read or listen to tend to be those things that you don't want to come back to. You might say, you might listen to it once, like music, really avant-garde music. You might listen to it mm, once and say, yeah. well, that was intellectually interesting and you're never going to listen to it again. And probably a lot of abstract art is in the same way. I mean, I've changed my view on abstract art since I think there is probably a place for it. But I don't think most people are going to have the same kind of fondness for splatters on a page as they're going to have for a beautiful landscape. And I guess touching to another subject we might talk about someday, it touches, it goes into that sense of beauty, mm-hmm. is that we tell the same story, but some of the stories just have a certain good sense to them, a, good, a certain aesthetic to them that appeals to us. Mm-hmm. You go back to Ecclesiastes, you know, one of his main things he keeps going to do, he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless, and everything's been done before. But then he says, at some point, if you can eat, drink, be happy, and enjoy your work, is a blessing from God. I think for stories, what's important is just eat, drink your stories, and be glad with what, you know, with the, your daily bread of stories. Instead of trying to make something that's going to break, you know, shatter all boundaries and be the great next great American novel. And Yeah, there's something very simple and good about enjoying the, well, the simpler things. But I think it's worth that we also talk about kind of the flip side of this, where we have, you know, sometimes where people, their aim isn't to be original at all. And so they wind up making a product that looks very much like a hundred other things that have been done. Yeah, you'd like the people purposely go on the back on whatever's popular and say, I'm going to write a book like that. Mm-hmm. Like vampires are, are really big and we're going to do a vampire story or to use another YA example, <laughs> uh, this, not dystopias, but post-apocalyptic Things are really big right now. Hunger Games. So let's do a copy of that. And that's not the best artistic choice either. And it comes back to kind of our commercial force artistic in some ways, where I do think there's a segment of population where the telling the story is not important. It's the getting the story purchased, mm-hmm. read, watched, whatever. The popular myth behind Hollywood executives, producers, the producer type people is... Whenever, you know, a horror movie or whatever makes it big at the box office, the executive is on the phone to all his underlings going, where's my horror film? I need a horror film now. <laughs> or something, you know, yeah, whatever, exactly. whatever's big at the time. Transformers is doing well. We need to make another movie off of another game. Let's do a Battleship movie. <laughs> Which, incidentally, there is actually a Battleship movie in the works and it's going to premiere next summer. Seriously? No, I'm dead serious. Oh, man. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Following with Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> wow. Monopoly. Yeah. The mu- Well, it seemed like I read someone was trying to make a Monopoly movie. I think someone probably was. But that again, that's the bad side of It's not the reason to make a movie or a story. Yeah, it really... This comes, And Tim and I are in agreement on a lot of this. A story needs to be told because you think it needs to be told. Yeah. And I'm not good for trying to get sold then. <laughs> because if you're going to be a commercial artist, you need to be able to tell a story you want to tell and simultaneously that other people want to listen to. Yeah. But I do think that you can even say, you know, exec says, hey, we need another game movie. You know, maybe you can think of something really clever. You say, yeah, I'll do the movie Clue. I mean, if it hadn't been done yet. Uh-huh. Um, and make it really clever. One thing that I, I know some, some artists do to be original, they just put certain constraints around themselves. Hmm, yeah. Certain things that they said, I'm going to try to do this. And they're not trying to be, well, it could come off either gimmicky, depending on who's doing it, or just, oh, that's a really neat experiment. And experiments like that don't always work. We've talked about rope in here before, mm-hmm. which, you know, is all kind of one, well, in, simulates one camera shot, basically one room for a movie. Which Real, I thought was fascinating. Some other people... I love it, yeah. yeah. Well, and Hitchcock didn't do that. It, Rear Window was kind of an experiment in how do you tell a story. That's true. Confining to one location. Also, sort of, the character is the voyeur as well, along with the audience. Yeah. I mean, movies like Cloverfield say, look, we're going to tell a Godzilla movie from just some random guy running around. Mm-hmm. And I think those sorts of things can be very interesting. Some of they tend to have cult appeal. Like, I'm going to tell a movie with all Muppets. And then you get Dark Crystal. <laughs> yeah. Or or Dog City, which you mentioned once before. That's true. But I, I do think that, like, if you're trying to be creative, that's an interesting way to try it. Just give yourself constraints and, and then tell as good a story as you can. And I'm sure there's non-Hitchcock examples I'm not thinking of. Mm-hmm. We talked about when we when we saw Super 8. It was like, you know, if you took away the monster stuff, all the alien stuff, what you'd have is, like, a very simple kind of family drama. You know, independent moviegoers would probably love it. Because it's like, oh, it's about a father and a son reconnecting. But then you you place that in the middle of a monster thing going on, and you've got a much ma- more massive appeal to it. Again, it's that's a good way of using the archetypes that you're working with. You've got the father and son trying mm-hmm. to get together, plus 
There's a monster evading the town. <laughs> and I think I think that's true. Just throwing two possibly different ideas together, just juxtaposing them, smashing them, and stirring them up, you get some really interesting stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, sh I should ask here. How come do you think sometimes these archetypes that they use, and they seem they seem to be trying to use them very creatively, but sometimes they don't come across that way? Example I'm thinking of is Avatar, the James Cameron okay, Avatar. James, okay. There are a lot of people who were pretty entranced by his world. You can't, if anything about James Cameron, you can't say that he wasn't really good at world creating in that movie. But for a lot of people, the characters themselves, the story structure, it was way too familiar. It was Pocahontas, Dances with Wolves, you name the environmental film, it was kind of emulating that. And that felt forced. So how come how come archetypes in that case, didn't, they didn't live beyond themselves, whereas something like Star Wars or Super 8, it seemed to do that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm not certain there's a good answer per se, but it seems like, like Avatar, I'm I'm with you. It seems it's just kind of story wise, just kind of seem blah. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe if you can tell, if you're not lost in the story enough to not see the strings that are moving, if you can see the person pulling the strings, mm -hmm. you can say, oh, now here's where this happens. Here's where this happens. Then it all falls apart. Uh huh. But you can, I remember when Up came out, people were saying, look, love the movie. I said, it still kind of worked. They, you know, you knew exactly when it was going to be the heartbreak moment and stuff. But they did it so well that you don't even, you're so involved in the movie, you're not thinking about that first time. That's, that's probably true. And, I, and I, I don't know how you pull, and how you pull that off as not to pull it off. I can only say, love your story. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that's probably the first step. And then have someone else look at it and see because, like, like Star Wars. You're not thinking about it, partly because it's in such new clothing, but Avatar is in new clothing. Mm -hmm. Maybe because the the conflict itself, the whole, here's a planet, and it's been, it's been seen so many times, and so many times it's been in movies where it's not taken... It's not like Miyazaki, where the, the conflict between nature and invading man is complex, and you feel like each person has real sides. You feel like both sides are just stand-ins for drama. That's a very good point, because Miyazaki does have very environmental kind of overtones, but that's the thing. There are more overtones as for as opposed to two ideas that just clash against each other. Like, the military guys, I don't think, had much real resemblance to reality. And I think even they would have done the same story, but given the characters a little more roundedness, mm -hmm. I think would have done, gone a long way. Yeah, You know, it maybe make the military guy still crazy, but make him more believable somehow, as opposed to just like, I mean, some of the lines almost come off cartoonish. It's like Fern Gully all over again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and... <laughs> Doug Walker, internet celebrity, one of his, his characters, the bum, <laughs> I love his avatar thing, where he, they were, he was like simulating, we're the big bad government. And the scientists are like, no, no, you can't do this! Why? some kind of scientist? Yes! You think we pay you millions of dollars to tell the truth? Yes! And you think that because you have a brilliant mind and years of loyal experience that we're going to listen to you? Yeah! Well, we're not! Why? Because we're the big bad military! Along with the big bad corporation! <laughs> that makes no sense! Watch him! Click! Oh, <laughs> well, and the problem is, the military in that movie, and I think this happens for other movies where the archetypes just fall apart. You don't believe they would even say such things because anyone with half a heart would be like, wait a second, maybe we should take a moment. Mm -hmm. You know, Disney does that sometimes with the, you know, just has a big, bad, evil, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, not at all believable. It's just there so that you can have a final conflict. Mm -hmm. You want the drama, you want to tell the story, but whenever things are there simply so that you can have a big conflict at the end that's not necessarily organic... I think then it starts showing through sometimes, unless you're really good. Yeah. But I, I always feel like everything should be there on purpose. And sometimes they're there because that's what the structure dictates. Uh, that's, yeah, I, and it is a fine line. We talked about that a little bit with uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. The whole thing of having the islands was so there could be a big final conflict. When how much more original in terms of movie making would it have been to have the ending be kind of more about the exploration rather than a fight? I mean, I'm not against, you know, structures that are tried and true, but if you're doing it simply because of structure and not, if, you, if you're bending the story to fit the structure as opposed to interweaving the story of the structure, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I think it tends to not work as well. Or, or, you know, get rid of the structure and just let the movie evolve like it 
Sure. Now, the structure shows up because a lot of movies end up that way organically. Mm. Well, a structure can be a very good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like writing a sonnet. If you write a sonnet, a bad sonnet, it's you're doing all the rhyming and rhythm, but if you're moving your sentence structures around until it doesn't sound like English. Mm-hmm. But a good sonnet, it sounds like English, and it fits the structure. That's what good movies do. But the key is the story has to come first. The story has to come first, which always happens. You know, like, yeah. And characters. I mean, my, my I haven't seen Transformers 3. My dad saw it, and he, he just felt like the... didn't like the characters, the fights went on. He, he wasn't in, invested in anything. Mm. And I haven't seen it, so I don't know if I would think the same thing or not. But I think that's a, a valid thing. I mean, even good, even fun, just popcorn action movies, as long as you care about the character some. What, what did I watch with him we just we thought was great? The Expendables. <laughs> that's a great action movie. I, I've been meaning to see that. <laughs> it's like the, the, the finale is just so much stuff blowing up. It's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way some movies need to exactly. be. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, Natasha's like, after it, she's like, that was ridiculous. I'm like, it was awesome. <laughs> but to be fair, the, the point of an equally critical light on a creator I care very much about, I do think the problem of story not coming first could also be seen in Jim Henson's film, The Dark Crystal, to a certain extent. That was a film that really started, the conception of it started with the world making. There was this artist named Brian Froud that Jim Henson contacted, wanted to create a movie, a fantasy movie set in this world. It's a fascinating movie. There's no humans in it. It's all puppets, puppetry. It's pretty amazing cinematically, but the story is maybe a little too familiar, and I think that's one reason why it's kind of cultish. Because it's it is very kind of Lord of the Rings. They've got a thing. They've got to go into the the villains' lair to destroy and or to actually the place back. But a lot of it is is very familiar. I wonder if a little movie, too familiar, maybe if movies that are experimenting with some sort of new struct, you know, with Muppets for the whole thing or mm-hmm. a very distinct world. Because fantasy novels or fantasy movies sometimes seem to have this problem where the world's great but the story's too tried and true, mm-hmm. or Avatar. I mean, I wonder sometimes they spend so much time on the visuals and the ideas behind it that sometimes the the story gets lost in all the... Yeah, because... In the building. Because they're so focused on being original on the one area that another area kind of falls to the wayside. Which, I mean, you gotta give credit. I mean, because movie making is a very complicated thing. Oh, I mean, oh, definitely. To, do, yeah. to balance everything out. I mean, I think sometimes they almost just want... I don't know this for sure, but maybe they just want to tell this story in this world, like you said, and then they'll just get a script that works. Yeah, yeah. As an interesting contrast to that Labyrinth, the other famous Jim Henson fantasy, wears its influences on its sleeve. It knows that it's taking ideas from Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz yeah. and, you know, the sto- these fairy tales of a girl caught. It also kind of works really well for the world they're creating. It's sort of a patchwork fantasy kind of thing, whereas Dark Crystal is trying to be high fantasy, because, I think. Yeah, because it, Labyrinth, it really is... It'll say, here's where we're getting our ideas, but it's very original. I mean, it's not... It's copying the influence, but not the the pieces. Yeah, not the not the minutia. Minuta? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I always love when I try to use vocabulary words that you see in a, in a book, but you hardly ever say in real life. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Another, uh, Natasha... I was asking Natasha, what was the most original thing she's seen recently? And she said, uh, Memento, which we talked about here. But that's a movie oh, yeah. that's... Uh, it's a very unique idea... But the story went for, I mean, it's about going backwards. You could have done it wrong or right or many other ways. Mm-hmm. But it also has something to say. It's using the structure there to say something interesting with the story. And I think that's the best way to use originality is if you're going to do something crazy, completely different, to use it in such a way that it, it means something for that story. You have to match story to structure, mm-hmm. which is also a whole other topic. But <laughs> Well, and that brings to mind another example with this Miyazaki thing that I was talking about. Because Tales of From Earthsea had some beautiful animation in it. The backgrounds were gorgeous. The, the setting was just as cool as you would expect from a Ghibli film. But the characters, you got lost when trying to figure out who they were. Because they were very kind of subdued, in a sense. In contrast, you can enter into a movie like Spirited Away, which has all kinds of crazy fantasy stuff going on, but you've instantly connected at the beginning of the film with Chihiro. That's kind of your, you've got a stable ground here. In Tales from Earthsea, I don't know that there was ever a person that the audience could empathize with very quickly. And so I think in that sense, you had some of the pieces 
but the structure didn't follow through. Well, that's why many fantasy stories are structured to start in some backwater place with some no-name kid. Yeah. Because <laughs> then they don't know anything, just like the audience doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And then they introduce it at the same time. You just throw them straight in the middle, it takes a lot more effort. Um, you can do it. And Miyazaki has this, this pitch-perfect way of letting the, his fantasy world for the movie kind of unfold in front of you in a way that really supports the main story. Speaking of unfolding, I need to expand my movies, I think. But um, <laughs> but Inception, the way they unfolded that, which was gonna be, you could have gone wrong a lot of different ways explaining that movie. That's very true. But, I mean, the first 20 minutes, which is throws you right in the middle of it, keeps you, you're always on just the edge of not quite understanding, mm -hmm. but they keep giving you just enough stuff. Well, Inception is another good example of creatively and originally melding genre ideas together. Because not only is it kind of a science fiction mind-twisting thing, it's also a caper movie. Yeah, it's the, like, my last job till I get out movie. Yeah, so so that there's a structure that the audience understands. And then you throw into the whole dream sequence things, and it gives them kind of a foundation for understanding this really out-there <laughs> idea. Exactly. So I guess that's, uh, I think we hit some ideas how to be original, some ideas how not to be original. <laughs> I guess the last thing is don't worry about it. <laughs> so in other words, this entire discussion was pointless. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, don't, don't get caught up on it. But definitely look for new ways of seeing things. But don't be afraid to rely combining on... Combining things. Combining things. But don't be afraid to rely on old ideas as sort of your backbone. Because the old ideas work. Yeah, as yeah. long as you do them right. Yeah. <laughs> and story is king. Story, I like that. Story is king. Yeah. It sounds like a line from Tennyson. Maybe it should be. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a, in Idol of the King at one point it says, um, and oh, I don't remember, and something was king, like fear was king. Or, I don't remember. But story is king. Well, I hope I made Lord Tennyson proud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I First guess. soundtrack then is mine. That's right. Let's go on to soundtrack. So soundtrack today, I was sorely, sorely tempted to pick a Maze Dude song because originality and Maze Dude are kind of similar synonyms. But um, I decided to go with something more original than Maze Dude, as in for me. Um, <laughs> it's a very classic song. It's the main theme from Zelda, remixed by Matthias Holmgren. And he recorded sounds from a Heineken bottle, different level. He blew over it with different levels of liquid in it. He hit it. He found different ways to make percussion off it. And then he used all those samples to make this song of Zelda, the main theme, called, oddly enough, Zelda Heineken. <laughs>
very groovy yes it was it's fun to listen it was interesting talking about originality the comments on that song some people were saying oh they love it and other people say oh it's just gimmicky so that's what happens when you try something too like original that. too original <laughs> yeah but i thought it was cool all right well let's go on to our next segment project update so nick you working on stuff i'm working on stuff tim how about you i'm working on stuff can't really talk about it yet. All right. Sounds good. That's our project update. All right. Next segment. Our take on Tails. All right. So this is a segment where we just talk about something we've seen or read that we thought was interesting and worth sharing. Mine might be a little uh, lengthy, possibly. Do you have one? Yeah, you specifically asked for our take on Tales this time. So I was like, huh, Nick has something he really wants to talk about. I was about. very proud of myself. I finally finished something I'd been working on for about three years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, okay. well, I might as well, with that, I better start. <laughs> yeah, go for okay. it. Okay, so I finished Les Mis. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Oh, I started congratulations. like I started like three years ago, and I kind of read on and off because the setup well, the book's fifteen hundred pages. Yeah, but with all the Russian novels you've read, that's easy, right? <laughs> Even for a Russian novel. <laughs> but I read in stages partly because it split up in four books, and each book split up into like ten sections. Each section has like you know anywhere between three and twenty chapters, so it's very easy to read parts at a time. And it's a fascinating book. I, I understand. It's the only book I understand why you would read an abridged version. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I don't like reading abridged versions. But Victor Hugo, if you've seen the musical or heard anything about it, you know it's about Jean Valjean, who was a criminal, and then he stole this bishop's uh, candlesticks, and the bishop didn't blame him, said he gave it to him, and that kind of changed Jean Valjean's whole life. And then he adopted this girl named Cosette, and so on and so forth. He becomes a really good man. Mm -hmm. And he's pursued by Javert. The whole time. Who, if I hadn't seen the play, I'd probably be calling Javet. <laughs> um, and it'd be Jean, ja Jean Valjean. <laughs> because I have no, no French. But Victor Hugo writes a much larger story. I mean, that's a large enough story as it is. It's, I mean, on okay. one level, it's the story of the redemption of a man. On the other level, it's the story of France, of history, of the progress of mankind. I mean, there's monstrous, like, there's 50 pages on the Battle of Waterloo that d it really doesn't have anything to do with the story except to set up this idea of there's a lot in it about France and about moving from monarchy to republic, that th this uh, political expression of the freedom of mankind and how mankind's progressing to more and more freedom and eventually there'd be this sort of utopia, which at that point I got kind of like, really, Victor? Um, because <laughs> oh, I, I can't, I can't buy the whole, eventually everything would be fine once we get all our systems in place. This was written in the 1800s. 1860-ish? Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a very, uh, it's a romantic style, meaning it's very kind of overblown and emotional. And the, the notes at the beginning say that by the time he finished it, that style had gone out of, or that kind of book had gone out of style. So it wasn't well received very oh, well. Oh, Interesting. Because it is very emotional, very kind of soap opera at times. Hmm. Which I don't mind because he does it very well. So it wasn't serialized, it was published in one big chunk? From, I think so, yeah, because he worked on it for quite a long time. Okay. So it's like, part of it's the story of Jean Valjean and um, his daughter Cosette, and then Marius who um, falls in love with her, and then he's in the in the barricade at the... The whole scene at the barricade is amazing. I mean, 
And that's one reason that's what well, the book's famous for a lot of reasons. But one is just the amount of detail Victor Hugo has. I mean, he talks about everything. There's there's like 20, 30 pages on prison jargon. And then or Argot. Wow. And um there's whole sections there's one chapter that's to talk about the styles, the fads of like eighteen thirty seven. Oh my. So it's very, very detailed. Now, Victor Hugo also wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Didn't you tell me once that he had an entire chapter describing a door? Or like uh, three pages or something crazy? Maybe. Like that? I don't know if I said that. I know um, Mike, Jarvis, Mike Jarvis, that's his favorite book. Yeah, okay. So yeah, he I'm might have said that. It might have been Mike Jarvis. Yeah, I haven't finished Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it's one of those books where all the extra parts mean something in the sense of the book's really like Victor Hugo's talking about everything. I mean, the big idea is God and humans and progress and redemption. It's really called Les, Mis Les Miserables because it's about society, about how there's this whole class of people, the convicts, the lower class, the prostitutes that are disconnected from the upper class. And so Jean Valjean kind of, you know, rises up and he pulls all the people up out of this miserable section. And then the Nardier is a convict and he's just horrible. I mean, he's, he's irredeemable. I mean, he's just a wretched, horrible man. But the character part of the story, just wonderful. The ending is fabulous. It's it made me very happy. Jean Valjean has to be one of the most good characters in, in literature that I've read. I mean, just his virtue, his what he does for other people and how humble he is. Because at the end, Cosette, this daughter he um, adopted, is all he has in the entire world. And Marius falls in love. And then he saves Marius from this war. And then he marries off Cosette, and then he's like, he decides he has to bow out because he doesn't want his being a convict to taint their marriage. So he basically gives up everything he ever had any investment in life, and then eventually there's a semi-happy ending. Well, it's a happy ending for him, but he dies. Right. But right. It's, it's, I mean, the, the plague catches most of the basics of the plot, but certainly worth reading. But if you're one of those people who don't want to read 1,500 pages, the bridge probably would work. So is the play a highly condensed version of the book? Or it really is. It hits all the highlights. I mean, it's like, okay, the the bishop that gives the candlesticks. Uh -huh. um, the whole first section, I mean, there's like 50, 75 pages before Jean Valjean shows up oh, about really? the bishop. Oh, wow. Establishing his character. Uh -huh. Even though he's only in the first, like... Five minutes of the play. Yeah. Prologue, I yeah. mean, they condensed it very well for... All the most important parts, but Victor Hugo really, it's, it's this panorama of society and God and progress and everything else. But if you don't, if you just want to hear the good character story, the play is really good. Have you it seen did. the movie with Liam Neeson? I have not. My wife may have. Okay. I was just curious. It, it seems to follow the same story. I saw I saw that movie before I saw the play, Okay. which would probably surprise some people because people think of Les Mis and think of Broadway, but... That's how I saw it the first time, and it seemed to, I mean, it was, I thought, a very interesting movie. It's not as uprising and kind of, you know, do you hear the people sing? And, you know, what's, what's that, Cavalier or something? What There's some excitement, I guess, for, for in the Broadway that's missing in the movie. Yeah. But as far as a redemption arc, I think it's it's pretty good. But that's interesting. Yeah, it's hard for me to explain the book, but at the end, I was really happy with the book. It was just a... But you can't. You have to read to understand the goodness of some of the some of the passages. Some of it would just bore you to tears. But <laughs> which is why I read it in sections. Uh -huh. But some of it's just amazing. And as a whole, it's it's pretty fascinating. Were you ever? I mean, since you said you read it over the course of three years, did yeah. you ever lose your place or? Oh, so I mean, luckily it's in it's in such a. I mean, it kind of is episodic. Okay. So sometimes I I, I forget details, but the broad strokes were pretty easy to follow. Okay. Cool. So, yeah, I, I just had to brag that I finally finished. <laughs> I was very happy. I was thinking one day that I was reading when Lily, my my niece Lily was born. She just turned three. Wow. And I'm like, man, it's finally off my bookshelf. Have, have you read any Dostoevsky in the meantime? I think I did. I think I read uh, The Possessed during that time. Wow. That just shows you how long they miss their Well, the, pro is. the problem is because it's so episodic. Yeah. When it got stopped, and I'm like, oh, I got this other stuff I'm gonna read for now, and then I pick it back up, and I'm like, oh yeah, I like this. It's, it doesn't necessarily. There's sections of it that really drag you along, and the section of it, you know, you just stop and you don't know if you want to pick it back up or not. Okay. And then you read it again, you're like, oh, this is interesting. There's like, you know, 30 pages on the pair sewers uh -huh. and the history oh, of those, which were actually quite fascinating, but not narrative. There's a lot of sections that are interesting, but they're not narrative, uh -huh. so they don't pull you along. So almost like a historical novel. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, it's like some of it's basically nonfiction. I mean, there's a lot of facts in it. Interesting. Yeah.
Interesting. Okay, so what's your non-French? Uh, unless you have a French movie. Actually, no, no, no <laughs> French stuff this time. Um, I think I'm actually going to take a page uh, from one of your ideas or from one of your books. So, like, I not one thing that I really want to talk about a whole lot about, but a couple of things. One of the nice things about being done with grad school is that I finally get a chance to read stuff that I've been, you know, catch up on some of my reading. And so one of those catching up things has been uh, reading Ted Decker. I know uh, your wife, Natasha, loves Ted yep. Decker. Yeah, she does. And and I've, I've enjoyed it, but I've been quite behind as far as... Uh, we publish like three books a year or something I like know, that. <laughs> I know. I'm like three or four years behind. But I just finished Skin, which I actually really liked. I mean, I'm, I'm there's part of me that I'm quite looking forward to reading another Ted Decker book that doesn't involve a serial killer. <laughs> are there some? There, no, yeah, there are some. <laughs> I mean, the, the Circle Trilogy. Oh, that's true. Or Quadrilogy. It's really a, fa it's a fantasy series. Oh, the new one that he wrote with uh, Tosca. I'm going to get her last name wrong. Tosca Lee. The one that Natasha got as Yeah, a, she thought that was really interesting, yeah. And was that fantasy or is it? It's a... Uh, Post-apocalyptic, I think. Okay, so that's that's probably a, a little different. To be fair, some of the other ones I've read doesn't necessarily focus on a serial killer, and it's in terms of he's out to get everyone, but there there was always that same kind of character in them. Yeah, not always, I should say, but in a number of ones I've read recently. But this one takes the serial killer thing and does a take a very interesting turn with it. The story is about the setup is very serial killer esque. It's a woman and some other strangers get trapped in this deserted town out in the desert and they have to survive and one of them might actually be the killer himself but they don't know who it is and i can't really talk too much more about it without giving stuff away <laughs> that's ted decker yeah that's ted decker <laughs> it suffice it to say that it, it's a there are twists that you'll either really really enjoy or really dislike uh, depending on your uh, willing suspension of disbelief now if they haven't read ted decker you would start with the circle trilogy Possibly. So I, I might actually start with either Blink. Oh, Natasha loves Blink. Blink is Or three. She Blink or th three. Yeah, Blink or three. Those are two early books of his, but I think they're probably the most accessible, unless you really enjoy serial killer stuff. I mean, he's a Christian author, but he doesn't necessarily write Christian fiction. He, he really likes to explore evil. Like, his whole idea is that by throwing light on evil, then you expose it for what it is, and it doesn't have fear over you which to a certain extent i see but also sometimes i think he dwells with it too much i know natasha have talked that he also has a habit of um taking spiritual ideas and making it very very physical yeah which is an true. interesting thing like um i can't think of an idea offhand emmanuel's veins if you watch is that i've never read that that's it's newer i've i've been trying i think I've that's been... one where there's actually like drinking blood but i think there's some if you want to read it connecting communion sort of oh that's interesting well and i can't talk about many of them without but yeah, he tends to take very spiritual ideas and make it, what if this was actually physically real? Uh-huh. And this one is kind of like that, too. This one is a lot about, is what you see real? Or ex a lot of it is about, you, you can't believe your eyes. There are things going on under the surface. I mean, you know, spiritual warfare, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, the condition of a person's heart and stuff like that. But you don't necessarily have to read it that way. You don't, although it all it strongly hints toward it yeah, that okay. way in, in a lot of ways. This, I've, I've only read three. So in this particular know. one. But I, I enjoyed it. I complained about him relying too much on serial killers, but it was done very well in this one. I liked it. It turned out, this one worked out much better than I think Obsessed did. And I liked it more than Saint, which I know that Natasha really loves Saint. She loves Saint, but she doesn't like Obsessed much. I think that's one yeah. of the weaker ones from yeah. her point of view. I think so. So a, a couple other books I'll talk about quickly because I talked about skin more than I expected to. Um, a graphic novel with Batman called Hush. Um, I'm always a little hesitant about reading Batman because his comics often are very dark and gritty and sometimes gruesome. So I'm always a little cautious. But this is a story that I've heard a lot of good things about. And I turned out to... I really, really liked it. If you were a fan of the Batman animated series, you'd probably feel right at home with this story. Oh, interesting. Jeff Loeb, I hope I'm saying his name right, he was the author, and Jim Lee, they're the ones who did this story, and they had a nice setup where they, they knew they were going to have a 12-month run on Batman. And so that's what they did. And they kinda, it kind of felt like they took the... It's like, okay, we get to write... Batman solely for 12 months. What can we? What kind of fun stuff can we do with this? Cool. So it's a cool story that involves almost all of Batman's main villains, but with someone who's kind of pulling the strings, kind of influencing the villains to do things in a way that they haven't done before, and kind of, in that sense, kind of threatening Batman. And it brings in a lot of Batman mythology. 
But it also explains it in such a way that people who wouldn't know it could really still get into it and really enjoy it. Cool. So it's a two-volume set um, in trade paperback form. So it's called Hush. I, I highly recommend it. Nice. And the third book I'll talk about, unfortunately, it's not published yet, but we're working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I finally, after saying for many months that I was going to actually finally read it, I finally read Nick's book, The Squire, and I loved it. I think it's my favorite new book of Nick's because uh, it's a really fun world. It's, it's a fantasy book, but it's kind of... It borderlines on spoof, but while not really going into it, it's like it pokes gentle humor at some of the crazy characters that are really kind of out there as far as fantasy conventions go. But at the same time, it is an authentic adventure story and it takes itself seriously. And I really love the, the whole focus on the main character and his very servant-like attitude. He's a character that winds up, Obed winds up becoming a squire without really intending to or really having... He's the most plain person you can imagine, but he winds up getting this whole entourage of followers, um, even though he's a squire for a knight who doesn't appreciate him at all. <laughs> but it was a very, very fun read, and my, my little sister has really enjoyed it too. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I, I need to do something with it. It really is a very unique uh, combination of things. So hopefully, keep pressure on Nick, folks, because we wanted him to get an agent and publish it. And, uh, because I know Danielle really already knows someone she wants to recommend <laughs> it to. So. Good. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll wrap things up and uh, we'll give you some contact info. All right. Uh, our website is drilltrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Please come leave us comments. We'd love to hear from you. We'll feature you on the podcast. Like we said earlier, there's um, it's really nicely formatted now. It's a little bit easier to load web page, so check it out. Subscribe to us on iTunes. We, it's a very easy, nice way to get our episodes. Have all the episodes in one place, and you can always email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. Yeah, we should give a prize to this first person who emails us. Ooh, I don't know what prize, though. Yeah, I'll write no you a flash fiction. <laughs> I don't know, I could. It might work. <laughs> We'll um, email us and tell us what prize you want, and we'll tell you yes or no. <laughs> free motorcycle from Free motorcycle, like, yeah. <laughs> free <laughs> guest uh, star on an episode. <laughs> no, we better not, we better be careful. No, I don't know. We don't. We, we're we're actually quite poor. <laughs> <laughs> what what's something we could have him talk to us about? Okay, yeah, we're thinking about. We would like to hear from you for this episode. What is the most original thing you've read and or seen, and was it any good? Ooh, interesting question. Because sometimes original things are not good. That's right. <laughs> sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just strange. <laughs> like, I, I have never seen Lady Gaga, but she's original. Yeah. She may or may not be good. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I'm a not. But have you seen the Weird Al parody of... It is quite... Hum well, the Quite weird, bizarre. No, the, the his parody... Um, video is kind of scary yeah no yeah that's what i was talking okay. about yeah the video is kind of scary the song is funny yeah the actually seeing it is a whole nother matter but i don't know any harley and Lady gaga so i just go by what i see which is scary yeah so right. don't write to us about lady gaga write to us about <laughs> original uh works of art that you have seen or read or read or played Oh, play. Yeah. Could be a video, video game. game. Yeah, we, love, we need to have a video game podcast. Yeah, we should. We keep talking about I it. I know Greg asked for it. Our participatory so. games or stories. Well, stay tuned. You never know when that might show up. In the meantime, uh, my soundtrack today, uh, I have to give some credit to Nick for this uh, because when we were talking about the originality, he, he suggested it. And I'm like, you know, of course, since it's a remix, the song is an original, but the presentation is pretty much so. This is from Final Fantasy IX. The fact that it's my favorite Final Fantasy is a bonus there. Um, this is it, what, like the second or third Final Fantasy IX we've done? I think it's just the second. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till the remix CD comes out. Yeah, I hope it does soon. But the name of the song is The Battle of Strings and a Cell Phone. And yes, that means that a cell phone is one of the primary musical instruments used in this. So that's why it's a very original presentation. The remixer is Zid. Just Zid. That's a very, I like that. Yeah. That's easy to pronounce. Sounds like a Superman villain. <laughs> no, it's not. I know. <laughs> <laughs>
But this is a remix of the Battle One theme music. It's called The Battle of Strings and a Cell Phone, and it's very beepy and stringy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> to use our very technical terminology. Yeah. We're good we're good musicians. <laughs> All right, so this has been Dear Old Trains of Thought. I hope you enjoy the song. hope you ha have a wonderful week in two or two weeks or whenever next time you join us. This has been Tim. This has been Nick. Adios. Bye-bye. <laughs>